We are outdoor ladies who hunt, shoot, and fish, all while working in conservation and chasing kids. I am Julia Plugge with the Nebraska Game and Parks Commission. I'm Rachel Alice with the Iowa Department of Natural Resources. I am Megan Weiskup with the Iowa Department of Natural Resources. And I'm Tana Fancher with the Kansas Department of Wildlife, Parks, and Tourism. Follow us on our outdoor adventures. Welcome back to She Goes Outdoors. So recently I've noticed a lot of young wildlife hanging out both with their moms or even by themselves. Recently traveling with a family, we we went down all the way to Tennessee and back following quite a bit of interstate travel, crossing some major rivers, a lot of oh, wild areas along the interstates. And I, we've seen a lot specifically even fawns along the road, you know, those adorable spots, they're starting to like almost be in that teenager age, uh, I want to say, and it got me thinking about, you know, when do they start to leave mom, and then it just happened that I seen a post by Nebraska Game and Parks Commission, they had on their Facebook encouraging the public to leave the babies alone, you know, and we're kind of past that really young age, as I had pointed out, and more so that teenager age of their lives. And so I wanted to have an episode of this podcast talking about and poke the brains of our biologist as far as, as a humans, what should we do if we do find young at this age by themselves? What if they're hurt? You know, what if they're alone and not with mom? You know, what what do we do? We are going to welcome Dusty to the microphone in the Nebraska Game and Parks Commission, and he is going to answer a lot of our questions. Rachel and Tana have also joined us on the microphone, and we are going to pick his brain about young wildlife and why we should leave them alone. Before we start picking your brain, Dusty, please introduce yourself. Well, my name's Dusty Shulbicki. Um, I'm currently our depredation program manager for the Nebraska Game Parks Commission. I've been working for as a wildlife biologist here for probably the last 17 years or so um, with our agency through various roles. It's a pleasure to be on today, and I'm happy to try and answer any of your questions you may have. We're glad to have you here. I like how Julia said earlier that we were going to poke your brain instead of pick your brain because that's such a biologist thing to do, right? Just poke the brain. We're so glad to have you on today, Dusty. Before we dive into the topic today, would you tell us a little bit more about the depredation program? Um, our, our depredation program is basically is dealing with damage, basically agricultural damage more specifically since we are an agricultural state, working with landowners, trying to make that equilibrium work, our social, social basically carrying capacity work for everyone um, involved, trying to lessen wildlife damage on that and in, incorporate other aspects in um, like hunting to help manage those populations um, across the landscape. And this is just a recent position just added to the Game and Parks, correct? Yeah, it's, it's a new, new position added. Um, the program basically gets trying to develop into more depth. Needless to say, we kind of started out, it's always been a part of our manage, 
management, um, our wildlife management division, but actually we wanted to always get a program for we could put more focus onto this, more attention into it. Pretty new program. As of with the program manager, we added a couple positions also to help out across the landscape and work with these landowners and make good connections across the board. And with it being such an agricultural based state, which you know, Iowa and Kansas is as well. We all recognize that that's an important position. So excited for you. Yeah, it'll, it'll be fun to develop this program and it should be a win all the way around on situations for wildlife. Jesse, I know we all feel for you um, being in the R3 field, <laughs> straddling that line between biology and human dimensions can be fun. So um, we definitely feel for you and we uh, wish you the best of luck in that position as you continue to develop it. Coming from ag states with Kansas and Iowa, we certainly understand where you come from. And and here in Iowa, we have a pretty, pretty impressive program that works a, a lot with Pheasants Forever, with farm bill biologists across the state dealing with um, some of your same issues. So it, it's definitely something that's near and dear to all of our hearts. As we start getting, well... I don't know about anybody else, but it's been a scorcher lately. We've just celebrated the 4th. It's certainly summer. The crops are are definitely growing. And like Julia mentioned, we start seeing a lot more animals out. Just yesterday, I saw three deer just hanging out in the middle of the afternoon, which was really strange because they obviously were hungry. But we start seeing more and more babies start you know, getting out and adventuring on their own. And when we start seeing this young wildlife... We think of spring, but really they don't mature enough to really go explore until this time of year. So anything you can really add to or, or comment on as to why we're starting to see more, um, more, I guess, Julia's term, teenagers out exploring right now? Yeah, I mean, that's a great thing to talk about. As, as you did mention, they're getting a little bit older now. They're past that really early fawn stage when they're just born and they're taking cover and hiding where you do come up on them, um, but needless to say, they're starting to explore out. They're getting a little bit older. Fawns, they basically slowly work off of their mother's milk, what they're being weaned off slowly over time. What they do is basically over time, they start taking on less milk and start eating more green forage. And we're starting to get to that time. Uh, Usually it's about two and a half months after they're born, um, survive on their own without the milk. But Usually they, I mean, are weaned off about anywhere from three to four months. So you see them out there at that time right now. They're, yes, adventurous. They're young. They haven't learned dangers yet. They're not scared of people so much because everything wildlife does is pretty much a learned behavior. But they're also out there starting to feed now, getting their green forage in. Um, So they're starting to transition to that point when they're going to be fully weaned off here shortly. But it's, it's uh, the first time because, you know, not every animal is born at the exact same time. So you have some different groups. You may have some fawns born a little bit later and some born earlier. So you kind of pick up a mix of in between everything. But as you did mention, there's a lot of teenagers out there moving around, just like humans in general. Once you kind of get to that younger age, you want to explore, you want to be out, you want to do different things. And the same with wildlife. And for the audience that is not familiar with the word weaning, you know, weaning is the fact when the the young is basically no longer dependent of the milk of on the mammals. Does is it natural or do all wildlife kind of do the same where do they just kind of do a slow wean or do they just say, hey, see you later, check you later? 
I'm leaving. For the most part, um, on any milk-bearing animal, it's usually a gradual process. It takes time. It's just a slow process where you slowly reduce the amount you need, um, and you're starting to get that increase in forage as of eating, say, alfalfa, grass, other green growth, basically, in there. Um, so you don't need as much milk at that time. You're filling full already. I, I like to associate the same with babies when you start feeding them cereal and stuff like that. Uh, they need a little bit less milk. Um, they're full more. They sleep better. Kind of the same situation goes. But yeah, it is a, it is a slow, gradual process through it. It's just something that's not instantly overnight. It happens. But needless to say, yeah, it goes back to the point once they hit that certain age time frame, they'll start transitioning to more food, and more of a solid type food. And at that point, they'll take less milk on because their body don't need as much at that time. And then mom says, check you later. <laughs> Fend for yourself. They, they still kind of hang out in their groups and follow each other around. It's, it's, it's typical. Your kids don't run off till they, till they hit later in their teenage years and they want nothing to be <laughs> doing with yet, So. Good point. Good point. Well, Dusty, I know this can be sometimes a controversial topic because um, whenever there are humans involved, we also bring with us a lot of big emotions. So I'm curious from your biologist perspective, if we do happen to come across a group of young raccoons, nest of birds, den of foxes, fawn, um, that seems like the mother hasn't returned for some time, how should we respond to that situation? Should we try to feed the young? Well, first thing I always look at too is um, make sure it's been time. I mean, just because you haven't seen it at this time don't mean they haven't returned in the meantime. A lot, a lot of those uh, parents don't spend the vast majority of time with those young ones. Like the fawn, it's, it's very limited time. Um, They'll leave that fawn there. Mother will go out and feed, um, usually not too far away, but far enough away you don't see it. Part of that is kind of a more of a predator response to keep predators away from them. Uh, same thing for bunny rabbits, if you want to think about that. Uh, your cottontail rabbits, typically, they'll nest and leave their young, and you'd almost think that the mother never comes back to them, but actually they do, usually about two times a day, feed them very short time, and then they're out of there. Uh, it's just one of those things they're trying to keep the predators from finding those nests or sites. There's always that case you do run into animals where there is mother could be injured. Um, sometimes it's best to leave them for a while. Um, mother nature does take its course at times. Certain animals sometimes will be basically taken in by another adult at some time. I've seen that happen. But needless to say, sometimes it's to that point where you see an animal is suffering at that point and need, needs help. Um, there's going to be different situations on all animals. We have a decent outlet here in Nebraska, um, Wildlife Rehab. There's some good steps there. You can look on their website to get some good ideas what to do in certain cases um, for certain species of animals when it's needed to maybe contact them. I always say you don't want to take these animals in yourself because a lot of these um, animals are federally or state protected and they do have regulations. You need permits and stuff like that to house them or take care of them. Definitely call an expert if needed on that situation or you can contact our agency or probably majority any of your other agencies in your states you guys are from also. Dusty, I wonder too, is it, I think sometimes we don't give animal mothers enough credit. They're so um, intelligent about that process and there's such a strong instinct there, but 
in some instances, we see cases of mothers abandoning young because there's something wrong with the young. Either they've sensed some sort of genetic malfunction or observed a behavior that isn't healthy and they know that that young may not survive. And so I, I kind of wonder sometimes, is that like what you said, where nature's taking its course and maybe by that mother abandoning their young, they're, it's like protecting the overall health of the herd? Um, I don't think the deer is thinking about it in that perspective, but from our perspective, looking at that situation, would you say that's the case? It could be a case um, along those lines. And I always say when Mother Nature takes its course, there's always kind of that circle of life chain of events. What what does happen? I know we don't like to think about it because sometimes it, you think of bad things, something like that. But you always think of two, one life may support the life of another. So you always got to look at the complete focus around that. And but yeah, some of those cases are. Uh, there's just a certain step and plan for about anything going through there. And we have a variety of animals that do depend upon other animals. So it's just it's one of those things. Mother Nature always has a way of working itself out. The web of life, uh, the fittest of the survival. You know, it's, it's part of life and is, sometimes it's good. And actually, a lot of times it's more so good than, than not. We look at it that is a benefit factor of the web of life. I was listening to a, a different podcast and they were talking about uh, feeding like mother bunnies, feeding other bunnies. And it, it's something like Dusty mentioned two to three times a day, but it was like 30 seconds. They get in, feed for 30 seconds and get out because of that predator prey concern. And I, I just, as a mother, I couldn't imagine getting my stuff together that fast to get that done. I, I, I mean, I can't even like warm up a bottle, you know, <laughs> and, and here they are. Boom. Just think how much more productive we would be, though, is like, here, have your bottle. 30 seconds and move on. I don't know. <laughs> that might be my lifestyle. Uh, and then and then we were all I was also listening and they were talking about barn swallows and and there was a nest of barn swallows that had fallen. And unfortunately, the the mother and the father swallow had had died. And so there was another nest of swallows and that mother and father actually took over. So I, I wasn't aware of kind of that adoption, if you will, where like kind of that surrogate parenthood. Is that very common within the animal kingdom or or is that just a, a rarity? It, it sure can be, and it, it's going to vary from species to species along those lines. Um, but yeah, it, it is common throughout different wildlife we do have. But needless to say, yeah, I mean, everyone's kind of unique and different in their, in their self. But And there's some, always some good outcomes to it. But a lot of times that chance, if you do take something in, it, it don't have that chance to be adopted. Or it's any anytime we do interfere with wildlife in, in general, I mean, there's always things to consider about your scent and stuff like that. I mean, they wildlife um, considers people as basically a predator to them necessarily. Uh, so it's always hard once you do take an animal in or something like that or actually handle that animal that a parent per se, what's there, what maybe was gone is going to retake that animal back in or even the chance of another animal taking it. I mean, your odds just go down every time you interfere more and more with the wildlife in general. Um, the best is usually sit back at a distance and, and watch and keep a watchful eye out and at that, that end. But like we said, some of those different wildlife species only come a minimal 
amount of times for a very short time and it's not hard to miss something. My mom always said, you know, don't touch them, stay away, just watch. And I always thought it was just because she didn't want me to mess with it. And because there is kind of that, that perception that our involvement sent in everything else is the mother's then going to reject it. But, but there are situations where you, where you can get involved. You know, maybe if you do find a robin's egg on the ground and you can put it back in the nest and then walk away, I know that that is an okay. But are there any other situations where? Oh, there's, where there's various different situations along those lines. Um, per se, you said that egg type, egg type situations, sometimes it's a nest too where it gets blown out. You can set it back in the tree. On birds, you always look at that case. I mean, are they fully feathered yet? Um, if they're not fully feathered, then yeah, it's probably okay to put it back in there. You're going to increase those odds a little bit. But needless to say, I'd probably recommend using some gloves, stuff like that for scent, plus for your own protection. Um, variety of wildlife could have diseases. What could be bad for you? I mean, anything along those lines are parasites. So always look at that point too. It's good to keep yourself safe. Needless to say, also on birds too, if you get feathered ones at that point, looking probably at a fledging bird. So at that situation, you probably want them to go. Let them go. I mean, that's when they're trying to move from the nest and more than likely the parents are probably close around anyway, but it's just kind of a part of their step moving on to their adulthood. Same thing, there's always always the case to get involved with uh, different wildlife. I mean, something if it's exposed out in the open for a long period of time or extreme conditions where it's not basically hidden or covered up and keeping the warmth, I mean, that's, that's a little bit different situation. It could have been um, a predator could come to the nest, move them off, but... Specifically, if you follow something um, along the lines of saying finding a nest of baby rabbits that are covered up, just because you hear some squeaking walking around, it's best to leave those alone. Now, if you got a rabbit that's clear outside of the nest um, and there's no nest in sight, that could be a different situation. This weekend when we were home between our house and garage, I kind of looked in the corner of my eye and I seen what I thought was a bat on the ground. And I thought, this is odd. Like, why is there a bat in the like hot summer moment on the ground? And I thought, well, it's probably dead. And I thought, okay, I'm just going to get closer to see, do I really see a bat? And I did. And then all of a sudden it, it jumped up and, and it flew away. And I was like, okay, well, I'm glad I scared it away, whatever it was doing. And I looked down and it had young. It was on top of its young. So kids were with me. I said, hey, there's a baby bat. They're like, well, what do we do? It's like, honestly, mom knows it's there. I'm leaving it. We're going to leave it alone. There's no reason to touch it. A lot of different situations come with bats. And they're like, well, let's get rid of it. I'm like, no, because if that bat's going to live, it will eat the insect. There's a lot of benefits here. We left it alone. And came back a little bit later and it was gone so mom knew it was there mom took care of it but it's just again another situation to share another animal to talk about and that's a good situation to bring up julia um needless to say yeah anytime you do have a mother and a young one there and the mother maybe takes off and the young one's still hanging around the area it's usually best to give them time to come back you, usually they all always come back especially if you don't interfere with them and mess with them um, they'll come back and take them off. A lot of times they may look at that as it was an unsafe situation and per se, I mean, more use around the area like a fox den or something like that, where there's foxes and stuff like that. 
you start hanging around, they usually pick kind of isolated areas, place away from people what haven't been disturbed. But if you start getting more activity around that den site, a lot of times the mother will bring take the young off just due to they deemed it no longer is a safe situation and they'll move them to a new den site. It's just kind of one of those things, just because you see the babies there don't mean mama's not going to come back for them. Um, happens a lot with ducklings. I've done this and remove some out of atrium, stuff like that. I always recommend give them an out, a way to get outside. Um, ducks are always notorious, especially mallards, for nesting in urban settings. And sometimes they pick bad spots to nest. Um, it's a good spot for them because they learn it's a safe spot. But the hard part is, how do they get out with those young? Always look to give them an option to get out. Um, it, it may be at a school, you have to run them way and out the door, per se. Um, I always recommend that before handling, because when you handle something, it's always that situation. Handling any wildlife in general puts more stress on that. And their heart rates go up, and, and it's just one of those things. There's always complications what could happen. So I'd recommend always not handling them. But... Needless to say, I mean, a lot of times that mother will fly off when she's out of there trying to draw you away and the young ones will hide um, per se, give her time. And she usually comes back to them always. So Dusty, I've got one as well. And I, it's uh, it's especially timely now because here in Kansas, we're wrapping up our wheat harvest. It was a little bit late this year getting around to the harvest, but um, we are wrapping that up now. And I know something that happens is that oftentimes farmers will come across uh, fawns out in their field. Do you get a lot of calls about that as a biologist or, um, and how would you suggest someone handles that if they are fortunate to spot this fawn before they run through an area with a combine? Are they able to get out and kind of pull that fawn to safety on the other side of where they're running or what's the best course of action there? Oh, uh, for the most part this time of year, those fawns are going to probably be old enough. They're going to move off on their own. Um, sometimes you just got to slow down if you catch it beforehand like that and just give it a few seconds. Uh, you can go out and slowly kind of push it off without actually physically touching them. Uh, for the most part, uh, all of our fawns should be fairly decent size this time of year already. But there's always an exception to one or two here and there. But needless to say, they should still move off. Even the youngest fawn, a couple days old, will move off to the next closest security cover. What a lot of our fields and stuff around here, and we have a lot of different habitat along the edge, so it's not too hard to move them off. And, and usually the mother's not terribly far away. She's probably in the trees watching and you just don't even know she's there. Um, and that fawn will take, take seclusion and the first cover it can come to then. I'm sure for any of our listeners that have questions, if they go to any of our websites, I'm sure they could find different phone numbers for wildlife rehabbers in their area and then also for wildlife biologists in their area. So if they come across questions, you know, situations where they have barn swallows or bats or deer or whatever else, I mean, heck, it might be a turtle. You never know what's coming up this time of year, um, especially with the the rivers kind of swelling and, and flooding. We're getting animals in places that are not normally. I'm sure they can give a, a, a call to any of those numbers and really, you know, pinpoint their their questions and get answers on best course of action. Yeah, that's a good thing to bring up, Rachel. I always, always say um, definitely contact, I mean, your wildlife agency for your state. They'll be the source of knowledge. They can basically direct you into what, what to do or where to call or who may handle some of those situations. And it's always better to get information on something before taking action. 
because there is different legalities out there. And then two, we don't know what kind of harm we may cause to that cause to that animal or harm what may happen to us. So it's always good to touch bases with somebody who knows a little bit more about it. And Dusty, you brought up a really great point earlier about kind of giving animals an out. I know when we have, you know, I know we've had bats in our house before and and I don't want them there and they don't want to be there at the end of the day. So if you can give them that access point, once you leave them alone, they're going to find it and they're going to remove themselves too because they they want to be out uh, in nature and, and not necessarily in your kitchen or washing machine or wherever you might find them. I say that because I found things in both of those places. So... Uh, <laughs> such is life but by giving that out it does give them that escape so that they can remove themselves so you don't have to go through the process of of removing or or worrying about how to get them out well every situation is a little bit different on this i deal with a lot of nuisance type wildlife and stuff along those lines um some species may be in there because they found an inn and they do need to get out, but sometimes they are not going to leave because they take that up as basically their permanent residence. So sometimes they will have to be removed out. Um, but a lot of times providing that additional thing outside, say bat boxes or something what's not on your house, but outside on a pole where they can safely have a place to find um, and use will will help on that situation. But I mean, something internally do is self-pace and health reasons, I mean, you probably want to get that out of your house where you're living. Um, now, instance, you left your garage door open and some wildlife make their way in. A lot of times you can leave that door open and they will work their way out and you just got to give it overnight. Um, typically, that's what happens. Uh, a lot of individuals do call at times. They left their garage door open. Raccoon or something like that work, work their way inside and now they found it in the corner during the day and it won't leave. Typically, most of your wildlife do a lot of movements and do most of their movements at night. They're more nocturnal on that, that stage. Um, so usually leaving it back open overnight, they're gonna go out, they're gonna find food, they're gonna move off. Um, it's just one of those things. They found an easy spot to sleep for that day and the factors could vary between their push from their other site. They didn't make it back to where they were normally den in time and it was getting light and they said oh this is a good spot to take a nap hearing about your bats in your house and connecting it with the bat that was outside my house i'm thinking i'm gonna take dusty's suggestion and find a bat house not connected to my house and because i'm i'm a little concerned there are bats in my house now maybe they're just in the garage which is detached but Oh boy, we're going to find a, an out for them, I think. You did mention earlier that bats were great for eating insects. So yes, I can tell are. you, I guess a story. I was out the other day with the kids at the swimming pool and just before it was getting dark, the bats were coming in there and eating the bugs were attracted to the lights around, around the pool. So it was kind of neat to watch and you see how effective they were working through the system oh. there. Certainly, certainly a great, great creature to have around, just not in our houses, right? Okay, Dusty, I've got a level with you. When I was younger, I thought I was going to be the next Steve Irwin. And I'm sure you can relate as a biologist. You want to, you know, see the wildlife. You want to engage with the wildlife. You want to interact. And that can be a tough thing to remind yourself, like, hey, I need to remove myself from the system and let nature 
take its course, like you said, or let nature um, happen naturally. But for those of us who um, maybe are just super interested in nature and want to bring it closer to us in a way that's safe for both us and for wildlife, or maybe for those of us like uh, Rachel and Julia that have kids that want their kids to kind of see some of these cool processes, I'm curious what suggestions you have on safe ways to do that. You know, you guys talked about bat houses and that comes to mind. Also like tadpoles, if you have a little small water body in your area where you can take your kids or take yourself (laughs) every day and kind of watch that process would be a good one. Um, I've seen some of those really cool, like clear bird feeders or squirrel houses that you can put on your window where you can see out, but they can't see you. Stuff like that, but also bluebird boxes, uh, wood duck boxes. Dusty, what do you recommend? for that bring them i definitely do not recommend feeding any any wildlife birds you can feed them needless to say but yeah it can be unintentional uh, for squirrels and stuff like that coming in raccoons um, majority of wildlife can forage on their own there's plenty out there for them it's usually best not to make them dependent upon people um, when it comes to birdhouses um, things like that i'm not the biggest uh, birdhouse expert but needless to say there's diseases that run around and there's somewhat hurt some different populations of bird species what come back to cleaning bird feeders and stuff like that, taking that responsibility and making sure you do those steps. A lot of people don't think about that um, to clean your feeders for them. Um, but needless to say, there's plenty of ways to get hands-on with wildlife and looking at them. I mean, more the ones that are wild are best to watch them from a distance. Buy a good pair of binoculars is a great thing to have. Um, anybody could use them. They're easy to use. Kids love them because they just like to play with things. And it's kind of like an adventure. But needless to just going to the park, sitting out there watching, going to more wild areas. I mean, we have wildlife areas you can watch wildlife on, um, variety of different areas, um, going to different sites, um, different habitat types like wetlands to see more waterfowl, to see more herons, stuff like that um, are interesting. Even going to just the lake one day, you may see some fish swimming along the edge, frogs, tadpoles. So there's a lot of different natural places you can go. Um, any little stream or creek, uh, it's just, I always call it just exploring as we always did as kids. What I, it's just the biggest thing is to get out. And there's a lot of public places to go for that. Um, your basic city parks are even very good for that. Um, urban fisheries, but like I did say, there's a variety of different wildlife areas, state parks. Um, a lot of parks do have programs, naturalist programs and stuff like that. There's different outdoor education classrooms and stuff that go on for different wildlife. More along the lines of they're injured or lost, um, more domesticated type stuff like snakes and frogs and turtles and stuff like that. Hands-on what you can look at and see and um, there's a variety of different aquariums out there also, but yeah, that wild aspect's always great to have. Everybody wants to go outside and see it free, but the biggest thing is, I mean, to watch it from a distance, a safe distance. You'll know that because you get too close, they'll usually move off. Thanks, Dusty. That, that's really good advice. And then I have to do a plug now because my first boss, when I came to Kansas Department of Wildlife and Parks, was our, uh, our hunter ed coordinator. And so I would be remiss if I didn't mention, like Dusty said, there are so many wonderful public places to go out and explore nature, to uh, view wildlife, to view all these wild places and things. That being said, always be aware of your surroundings and be aware of the other people and animals that you're sharing them with. So we encourage people always check the regulations. For example, some areas may be open to hunting, fishing, hiking, biking, et cetera. 
Other areas may be specifically designated for one activity. So do be careful of that. If you are going out into an area that's a shared area, um, you know, it never hurts to make yourself seen and just make sure you're safe. So be aware of what uh, potentially open seasons there might be if it's hunting season. Um, if it is an open hunting season and there is public access to those areas other than hunting, it never hurts to wear blaze orange and just make yourself seen. That way, if there's other folks out there, you see them, they see you, and uh, it's no big thing. We just want everybody to be safe out there and to share and enjoy our natural resources. So had to do a plug for that one. Very good plug there, Tana. Uh, definitely good information to have about that. Uh, yeah, always follow your rules, regulations for any of these um, sites. Uh, a lot of them will be listed by signage or be listed in on the agency's website uh, or say, make yourself visible. There's a lot of users that do use these areas and it's it's just a great um, opportunity for all of us to enjoy and use together what we've had for a number of years. All right, Dusty. I got one last question. I know we're kind of getting close to time here, but Tana mentioned she always wanted to be like miniature Steve Irwin. You've dealt with wildlife, people, interactions for you mentioned 17 years you've been doing this. Do you have a favorite story where you're, you went home that day to your family and were like, I cannot believe this happened? Do you have one of those stories? Oh, I could probably give you thousands of stories already. I mean, and it could be anything from people to wildlife to something I heard to something I witnessed to something I did. Uh, um, I've, I've always got some unique ones along some lines or another. I've, I've handled, like I said, a lot of different nuisance wildlife and a lot of wildlife in town. And I say, say not to catch something per se. I've been out removing a nuisance turkey before and I chased it around the house probably 30 times one day and that turkey kind of aggravated me. I'd go around it, jump on the deck. I'd try to sneak around the other side of the deck and jump off the other side and go that way kind of made me be like a fool what happens about most of the time with wildlife. They'll kind of make you rethink what you've been doing. And needless to say, I ended up um, basically capturing that turkey. And next day we went back with a net gun and I said, I'm going to get the turkey today. And needless to say, the turkey was there and wasn't around the house. And I looked right on the sidewalk right across the street and that turkey standing there. Well, and I walked over to it and basically kind of teased it a little bit, just moving my fingers, like, it, and it thought it was going to get some food. And this is where I talk about not feeding wildlife. Um, and the reason I came there was because this turkey was starting to act aggressively. Um, it was sitting on top of cars, scratching roofs, doing damage to house roofs, stuff along that line, asphalt shingles start chasing kids around. I mean, certain wildlife is different. Um, some of them can sense a fear into you. They might not hurt you, but they will chase you and kind of scare you a little bit. Um, there's always a potential somebody falling. I uh, could chase somebody out into the street and a car come by. You never know. But that turkey was used to people enough feeding it that I was able to grab that turkey by my hands. It was kind of funny because the individual who was with me that day's jaw just dropped and you could see it hit the ground. And he was like, I cannot believe you just did that. I said, I can't either. That's what happens when animals start becoming dependent upon people. And 
then we have to interfere with them along those lines. Um, write a book, Dusty. I think you need to write a book about this and then, or share a blog on Facebook or something and, and tell everyone these stories and maybe it'll start absorbing with people to recognize like, yeah, yeah, it's, it's not a good thing to feed a wild turkey because while you think it's a good thing now, the end result will not be the best. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's you run into those dangerous situations. I can give examples of coyotes or fox what get used to being around people because they've been fed by them um, and they kind of associate people with food. And yeah, they are a wild animal, so you never know what they're going to do. So they always have that instinct. You never know if they're going to bite you or what on that situation. But I've had them where they chase golf balls around and will grab golf balls right after a golfer hits it and funniest thing you ever see is a golfer running around the golf course while a coyote took off with their golf ball or a fox per se. Those situations are definitely unique. Um, I've seen some of those animals get so used to people that they'll, they'll run up to you and jump and think they're going to act like they're going to play with you. Anybody else would probably think it's attacking them at that time, but it's just, yeah, a different behavior they learn, but at any of those situations, they, they could get that instinct in no, no different than a domestic pet, like a dog or something like that. You never know if that animal can bite you. They always have that certain instinct to them. Um, and you don't know per se on a wild animal, what they may be carrying, if it'd be a disease or illness or anything along those lines, because they're usually not vaccinated for stuff like our domestic pets. Well, Dusty, I have to say thank you. Now I have an excuse. The next time I shank my golf ball, I'm just going to explain that a coyote ran off with it and I'm just going to have to drop a new ball and keep playing. So thank you. (laughs) A few questions back. You mentioned laws, questions or a discussion about regulations, federal and state regulations. Are there laws against feeding wildlife, taking wildlife in, Um, Is there a law, I mean, was there a law really against feeding that turkey? We have laws that protect wildlife in general as far as conservation efforts, but what laws are out there about taking in wildlife? And I'm going to ask you this, are you asking about laws on taking in wildlife or laws of feeding wildlife? That's a good question in return. Let's first address taking in wildlife. Okay, when it comes to taking wildlife, the majority of these animals are either a game species or they could be a migratory bird species. So when I talk game species, they have specific seasons for them, bag limits, all this stuff with permits. So that goes along the hunting ends. But to actually take one in to a captive, I mean, you'd have to have a captive type permit. Needless to say, you're not allowed to take any in unless they are already bred from a captive breeder. So per se, you have to have documentation on all that. So technically taking in a wild animal is not not allowed per se along those lines. Um, Unless you are a rehabilitator who has specific licenses and permits where they handle that to rehabilitate something what may be injured along those lines. And there are specific things they do what's different to keep them from being habituated to people and dependent upon people. Um, there's a whole different process they go through. Um, that'd be something you'd have to work through them, but I could probably talk an hour on 
different things along those lines. But then you have other species too that are protected. Like a lot of your bird species tend to be migratory birds and they're protected by federal. Same thing with babies, eggs, all those are federally protected. So the, any permit for a migratory would have to go federally. Um, and then you still have to do state permits. But for the most part, nothing can come from the wild. It all has to come from a captive breeder when you start talking those species, unless you're just a rehabilitator along those lines. A little bit different too on a zoo situation. They have some special permitting and they have to go through um, with the Department of Agriculture and everything um, with housing situations, pen situations. There's just a lot of different processes involved with all of that. And they have the zoologists and biologists to, with the knowledge to take care of those animals and, and animals and young are in the zoo for a reason, you know, for protection, for uh, science, to be able to expand uh, that population, hopefully, or save that population. So, I mean, that's a whole entire segment in itself and beyond this, but yeah, we have those laws and those regulations for a reason in the end to protect that population, to protect that wildlife. And there's the web of life for a reason type of thing. You know, and I don't know that we need to address the question as far as feeding wildlife. That may even be an entire conversation in itself. Um, briefly, I can mention real quick on it. I mean, feed, feeding wildlife, I mean, there's no specific rules on it until you get into the hunting aspect. Um, and then maybe it's banned for a hunting type season. But when you start talking urban settings, I mean, there's no regulations per se that we have um, as our agency in Nebraska and Parks uh, for feeding, feeding wildlife per se. Um, your wild birds, you can feed them. Um, sometimes feeding too is different. It's not intentionally. You're not intentionally feeding per se these raccoons, but you're feeding the birds here and the excess of feed, the raccoons are eating that there um, or the squirrels are coming into that feed say so um and maybe you're feeding your pets outside and you didn't bring your food in what i don't recommend feeding your pets outside if you do leave it out there a short period of time and then take it away because that'll inadvertently bring animals in there to feed them even though you're not intentionally feed them they are finding that food source and at that point they'll become dependent upon that food source uh Another thing too, I mean, it's always important to pay attention to your city ordinances. Um, I know there's been some cities enacting no wildlife feeding per se. Um, some city parks and stuff like that, they have no feeding of yeast out there on the area. So you do, do find some different ordinances that fall in, into place and different parks will have some different rules. So like Tana said earlier, always make sure you're familiar with the spot or locations you are on any rules or regulations. Well, Dusty, we've sure enjoyed having you on today. Uh, we've learned a whole lot and we went, you know, beyond just how do we, you know, what do we do if we encounter what we think might be orphaned or abandoned wildlife, but we've really got into the feeding, some of the regulations, requirements, if you are a rehabilitator. So we are so thankful for you and your robust bank of knowledge that you've brought to the conversation today. Uh, before we wrap up, is there any last minute reminders you want to leave our listeners with? Biggest thing I say is leave the young babies, the wildlife alone and let mother nature kind of live its way out there and be respectful and enjoy it. And it's a beautiful thing to watch and for all of us to enjoy. 
I'd just like to thank you guys for having me on today. It was fun. I appreciate you poking my brain. Thanks so much, Dusty. And to our listeners, if you have any questions for Dusty and you want to follow up, um, go ahead and reach out to us. You can get in touch with us on Facebook. You can send us an email and we will get your questions answered. We'll either get you in touch with Dusty or if we can answer your questions, um, we are happy to do that. Even if they are a little bit unrelated from the conversation today, we always love interacting with you all. Um, don't forget to like, share, and subscribe to the podcast. We always appreciate new listeners, new ratings, and let us know what you want to hear next, uh, what topics might interest you, um, especially as we start progressing into fall. I cannot believe how quickly this year is going by. Um, but as we start moving out of summer and into our fall months, um, let us know what you want to hear from us. We always love interacting with you. With that, Dusty, we want to thank you one more time. To our listeners, thank you all for joining us as always, and we'll see you outdoors. Outdoors.